Uh, Father, as we touch on two pretty sizable topics um, from, from this letter, pray that you would help us and be with us, and that you would bless the time that we spend in your word this morning. For it's in Christ's name we ask. Amen. All right, so um, at the intercession of some lovely, lovely students, I decided not to give a quiz. I'm nice this week. I'm going to go back to being normal next week. So, can you be normal next week? No, that's no fun. So, no, no, that's not true. So I'm being nice this week. Next week, I'm going to go back to being the same old grumpy, curmudgeon mean Mr. Gravit that all of you were missing this week. Uh, right, right. Yeah, you guys, yeah. So, um, I am assuming, though. Lord, I understand how people beat children and go to jail for it. All right. Um, um, I am assuming you guys read the link. Yes. Okay. Topic of the link was something called soul sleep. We're going to get into like an actual discussion of 2 Corinthians in a minute. This is just kind of a topical thing that these letters sort of hit on. Um, so, uh, something called soul sleep. Um, this is not a problem that the Corinthian church was facing, but it is a problem that is kind of an overcorrection of Gnosticism. All right? Gnosticism taught that the body doesn't matter. All right? Yes. Yeah. It, Gnosticism taught the body doesn't matter. So, Gnosticism says... That if you are someone who is among the worthy, that you received gnosis, when you die, your soul leaves the prison of your body and it ascends to heaven to be with God. Does Gnosticism believe in the second coming of Jesus? No. 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 Does it believe in a bodily resurrection? No. No. That would be nonsensical. Bodies are... Worthless. Yeah, worthless, bad, you know. So, um... Gnosticism taught that your eternal state, if you are one of the worthy, one of those that achieved gnosis, your eternal state is a spiritual existence in heaven with God. Paul disagrees with that pretty, uh, pretty, pretty sizably. All right. Um, for Paul, is the body something that matters? Yes. Yes. The body really does matter. And Paul teaches that whenever you die, your soul does ascend to God in heaven. He says, like in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, to be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord. So he has an idea in his teaching that whenever you die, your soul really does ascend to heaven to be with God. But is that the end of the story for Paul? No. No. Christ returns, and then what does he do? Resurrects you and your soul. Uh, the term that we use is that it reanimates your body. All right, your soul and body are reunited. That's the way God made you to be. So you're going to be restored to that. So Paul teaches that um, you know that is the ultimate eternal state. It's embodied existence in the new heavens and new earth uh, after the resurrection of the dead. Soul sleep is kind of this extreme view. So like if Paul's view is the happy middle, uh, Gnosticism would be the kind of um, 
antibody view, not antibody like you know medicine, but antibody as in we're against the body. Um, Paul would be your happy medium. Soul sleep is kind of your anti-soul view. Um, soul sleep teaches this, that whenever you die, you are totally unconscious until the resurrection. So soul sleep, in your article that you read, teaches whenever you die, your soul doesn't ascend to God in heaven. Instead, it's just kept in a state of unconsciousness, kind of comatose, until Christ returns in the resurrection, and then you kind of wake up, you come back to life. Now, soul sleep can find some support in a certain type of vocabulary that the New Testament uses for death. Whenever we read 1 Corinthians 15 last week, Paul didn't say Christians who died. What did he say instead? Yeah, Christians who have fallen asleep. And soul sleep, people who hold to this position, are going to try to capitalize on that language and say, well, look, Paul talks about Christians who have fallen asleep. That seems to imply that Christians, whenever they die, are in a state of kind of unconscious sleep until Jesus returns and wakes them up and resurrects them and tells them, get up. All right? That would be kind of the big argument for the soul sleep position. All right? Um, your article that you read over the week, which hopefully all of you did finish it, um, was an attack, basically, on this soul sleep position. That it is not really making good sense of all of the biblical data. Um, one of the principles that we have in biblical interpretation is that we have to interpret Scripture by Scripture. Or the principle that the Bible is its own best interpreter. What this basically means is that you can come to a passage, all right? Um, let's just say that you come to, to passage X. I'm not going to say a specific passage. Let's say that you come to passage X, and you say, well, reading passage X, I could kind of see how you could take a statement in it one of two ways. So you have interpretation one, and you have interpretation two. And you want to figure out which of those interpretations is right. Well, one of the measures that you're going to use, one of the things that you're going to do, is you're going to say, can interpretation one fit with the rest of what I find in the Bible? And if the answer is interpretation one fits with the rest of what I find in the Bible, but interpretation two doesn't fit with what I find in the rest of the Bible, then you're going to favor this one, and you're going to say, well, I'm not going to favor that one. Right Now, why are we going to do this? Who is the ultimate author of Scripture? Christ. God is. All right? God tells us the truth. God is all-knowing. So we should expect to find consistency in the Bible. We should expect that since all of the Scriptures have one source 
and that one source is the mind of God, we should expect to find that there is order, that there is structure. Corinthians says in chapter 14 of of 1 Corinthians that God is not the God of confusion or the God of chaos, but the God of peace and order. And that's what we should expect to find in the Bible. The reason that we are going to interpret Scripture by Scripture is we, by faith, believe that the Scriptures come from God, and so we're going to go with interpretations of the text that yield consistency. The other reason we're going to do this is because, um, does Paul strike you as a pretty intelligent person himself? Yes. Yeah. And so, would you expect Paul, as a pretty intelligent person, to have glaring contradictions in his thought? No. Probably not. He seems like a very careful teacher, a very careful writer. He seems like a very intelligent person. And so, if there were places in his thought where he held disp- you know, um, contradictory ideas... Or if there was a place where over the span of his ministry he held contradictory ideas, we would expect him to be able to notice those and correct those. Another thing here is, does Paul care about the opinions of the other apostles? Yes. Mm-hmm. How do you know that? He is referen- he'll reference them occasionally. He also We know that he cares about the opinions of the other apostles from the book of Acts. What is the big meeting in the book of Acts that Paul and Barnabas go to? Jerusalem Council. And there, they present their understanding of the apostolic message, and it is confirmed by James and by Peter, who a lot of people tried to pit against Paul and Barnabas. But we see in the book of Acts that those men had agreement. So as we're reading the New Testament, we should remember that in the minds of Peter and John and James and all of the other New Testament writers, these people are anticipating that they are preaching the same doctrines and that they're on the same page about the teachings they've received from Christ. So all of that should cause us to think, if I come to a passage and two interpretations are possible, and one really fits with the rest of what I find in Scripture, but, one, but the other really doesn't fit with the rest of what I find in Scripture, I should favor the one that yields consistency. So, what we find in our article that we read this week is that proponents, defenders of soul sleep, really want to take this language about falling asleep to be this key idea, and they want to stretch this so far as to say that between the time of a Christian's death and the time of the resurrection on the last day, Christians are in a state of unconsciousness, in a state of sleep. And what the author of that article, who you guys have met before, he's, he's done chapels for us before, um, the author of that article does is he says, let's look at what the whole of Scripture has to say about this. And he brings in a number of texts um, and, and what were some of the texts that he brought in to kind of fight against soul sleep, that idea? So some of the, 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 the one big passage from Corinthians that we see is in 2 Corinthians 5, 
um, where he says, we know that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. Um, And it says we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So there's an idea that whenever we are away from the body, when when are we going to be away from the body? When we die, there's an idea in this text that we will be where? With the Lord. Yeah, at home with the Lord. Does that sound like just a state of unconsciousness? No. That sounds like you're with God, enjoying God's presence. So that would be one from 2 Corinthians. Paul also says in Philippians chapter 1 that um, uh, he, he says that he is debating whether he should remain, basically keep on living, or whether he should die and go and be with Christ. And he says, to depart and be with Christ would be far better. So there's an idea in Paul's writings there, whenever he dies, he'll leave, and he'll be not in a state of unconsciousness, but with Christ. Um, Another example would be from Revelation chapter 5, obviously not a book that we've looked at yet, but in Revelation chapter 5, John has a vision of heaven where there are people who have died for the faith who are before God's throne, and they cry out day and night that God would put an end to the suffering of the church. Now, these people who have died, are they just in a state of unconsciousness? No. They're conscious, and they're praying to God day and night in the heavens. Um... So whenever we look at the big teaching of the Bible, we see that there is what we could refer to as the intermediate state. Um, Intermediate would be, what would be a synonym for intermediate? Middle. Middle. Middle, the middle state. So what this refers to is, all right, um, you have your life on earth. And then one day you're going to have your resurrection life in the new creation. But in between these, there is an intermediate state or a middle state, which is a spiritual life in heaven. And this language about Christians having fallen asleep We should probably not interpret this as Paul making some huge, you know, theological statement by using this exact language. Instead, we should probably understand this as a euphemism. What is a euphemism? Kind of, yeah, kind of. A euphemism is, it, it is one thing that kind of means another thing, but um, the way that we're going to talk about it right now is a euphemism is kind of um, a way of watering down language. Okay? So um, you probably don't go to a funeral and say, well, Brainy's dead. What would be the more sympathetic way of saying that? Yeah, she, Granny's passed away. All right? Uh, you're meaning that she died, but that you hear how passed away is a lot of, of like a softer term, right? Um, or, um, you know, sometimes a euphemism, um, you know, instead of saying, wow, you really bombed that test, you really failed that test, you know, what would be maybe a softer way of saying that? 
if I, you know, Gray has never failed a test for me, so I'm going to use him as an example. Let's say that the next test, Gray makes a 32. <laughs> and I put it down on his, on his desk, and I'm, I'm wanting to say, Gray, you did a yeah, like really bad job. Down. You failed, all right? But what would maybe be a little bit of a kinder way of saying it instead of, you failed? Do you, you want to reduce so well as you you didn't do as well as you normally do, or something like that, right? You kind of soften the language. Um, I think that what Paul is doing here is the term death is just such a strong term. It's such strong language that he's kind of softening that. And a dead person, you know, if they, if they died and, and they, you've seen an open casket before, you've seen a, a dead body before probably, right? What do, they, what do they do? They close the eyes and it kind of looks like the person is sleeping so he's probably using fallen asleep the way that we use passed away or something like that it's probably just a way of kind of softening that language and if there is a theological importance to it it's probably paul saying their body right now looks like it's asleep and one day it will be waken up at the resurrection but it's probably not paul saying you know in this intermediate state you're just unconscious for you know a couple thousand years before jesus returns <laughs> Because based on the rest of what we see in scripture, it really looks like that whenever you die, your soul continues on in a state of consciousness and that you're at home with the Lord. So um, I, I think the article is right to push against soul sleep and to argue against it. I don't think it makes good sense of all that we find in the Bible. And if this is a topic that is interesting to you, I think the best resource on it is a book called Psycho, and this, if I ever had you guys for church history, this would be an assignment, would be to read this over the course of about two weeks. Um, Psychopanchia, which is the second book ever written by John Calvin, and at the time of his writing it, um, he was my age. Um, and uh, it is, um, there were two groups at the time when Calvin was alive that held to soul sleep. And I think that it is just like the most, I don't know how anyone can hold to soul sleep after having read that book. Because he goes through every relevant text, every text that a soul sleep person would want to hold up. And then he does something very interesting. He goes back through the first, he, he's living in the 1500s. He goes through about 1500 years of church history and says, you have no forerunners. You don't have anyone who holds to this before you guys. Um, this is a totally new doctrine. It's a, it's a total innovation. So um, this would be a, a book that I would, um, it's only, I think my copy is like 80 pages. So over the course of about two weeks, I usually have students work on that and, and, and do reflection questions on it. So um, you guys are probably going to escape that and not have to do it, but I would recommend reading it. Um, so another thing uh, just to kind of know about people who hold to soul sleep today is that a lot of people who hold to it, I, I said this is kind of an anti-soul position. A lot of people who hold to this position today are what we call Christian physicalists. And Christian physicalism teaches that there is, um, you know, whenever we ask like what makes up a human person, we usually say a human person is both body and soul. A Christian physicalist says a human person is body. What are they leaving out? Soul. soul. All right. So the way that they would usually explain this would be to say, you know, 
Um, whenever ancient people, like the New Testament authors, wrote about the soul, um, they really didn't have like this really thorough scientific knowledge of like what all the body does. They didn't really know how the mind worked, yada, yada, yada. And so Christian physicalists will say it's not really wrong for them to speak of a soul, but the reality that they're trying to get at whenever they use language about spirit and soul, we now know is really just located in the mind. We, we can, we can, you know, recognize you can hook someone up to an MRI machine and, and, you know, um, you can, hit them with certain chemicals or you can give them certain sensations and you can see certain parts of the brain fire off. And uh, really like everything um, that happens according to a Christian physicalist in your life is really just a physical phenomenon. It's all neurons firing, chemicals firing, stuff like that. And so they don't really believe that there is anything in you separate from your body. Um, any, anything that the New Testament is trying to get at whenever it talks about your spirit or soul is really just something that's found in your mind, which is, where's your mind found? It's found in your brain, brain right? Like your, your mind and your brain are not separate, uh, according to a Christian physicalist, right? Your, uh, anything that you are really trying to say whenever you talk about your, your, your mind is something that is physically happening in your brain, all right? You start thinking about something, all right, you hook up to an MRI machine, they can see which part of your brain is working, depending on what you're thinking about, right? So um, this would be the Christian physicalist position. They would basically say there is no soul in a person that could enjoy a purely spiritual life in heaven. So soul sleep is then necessary. Um, you know, uh, until the resurrection, you have nothing that's <laughs> happening. You have nothing that's firing off. All that you are is body. So until Christ resurrects you, you're not enjoying any sort of you know, spiritual life. Um, I don't find Christian physicalism at all persuasive. Um, I think that there are massive, massive, massive shortcomings with that position. But most of the people that you would ever encounter that hold to soul sleep today are probably Christian physicalists or people that just don't know what they're talking about. That would be the other, the other side of it. But uh, someone who is intelligent and knows what they're talking about and holds to soul sleep is probably a Christian physicalist and probably just doesn't think you have a soul. So, um, uh, and, 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 you know, the people that Calvin was fighting against, they, they believed there was a soul. It was just asleep during that time. Um, but that would be like a very, very, very small minority position today. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you guys have questions about soul sleep or physicalism or any of that stuff? Like, just one more time to say that most of the people you're going to meet today are going to be Christian physicalists, people who actually believe there is a soul that just stays asleep until the resurrection. That used to be really popular. You would have a very hard time finding any of those people today. So a lot of times you're either going to find a Christian physicalist or someone who's just very confused. One of those two things. Yeah. So... Mm, on the point of soul sleep, is there any group of people that kind of flip around soul sleep? Because with soul sleep, it's the soul is asleep whenever you die. But are there any group of people that say your soul is asleep whenever you're alive? Or no? No. I like your soul is... And then when you die, your soul comes to life. I mean, maybe like some Eastern religions would try to do something like that. There's not really going to be a Christian group that's going to do that. If a Christian group believes that you have a soul, it's something that's actively working right now. That's kind of the part of you that's able to, you know, have some sensitivity to spiritual reality, stuff like that. So um, the entire Seventh-day 
um, Adventist denomination does hold to soul sleep. And they almost always, um, like whenever I'm saying, you know, um, the people that Calvin was kind of arguing against who, um, you know, they believe in a soul that really is asleep um, until the resurrection. Um, and, I, and I say that's a really rare view today. Seventh-day Adventist would be like the, the largest group that still maintains that, really? right? Um, so there are people like that who are still around today, all right? Some of them are very intelligent and can argue it pretty intelligibly. I still don't find it persuasive. Um, but so, so, so that exists. I'm just telling you, you're probably not going to run into many people who hold that. Most of the people that would hold to soul sleep today are either physicalists or they're just kind of confused about the afterlife and Christian teaching on that. Um, when I was at Bryan, I found a lot of people who were kind of flirting with soul sleep and then talking to them. They were just very confused, right? Um, so, uh, yeah, it's an interesting debate. Um, if you want to dive into it more, I really do recommend Psychopentia. Um, it's really not a long read. Um, and... Um, a lot of people don't like Calvin, but what I'll tell you is that Calvin is going to be uh, very... What you're going to get with Calvin is a lot of Bible. All right? You might not always understand or uh, agree with how he's interpreting it, but he's constantly going to be bringing Scripture to the fore, which I, I, I like about him, right? Um, uh, there are places where I don't really follow Calvin, but um, the, the good part of it is that he's constantly making you interact with Bible. So... Um, the thing about 2 Corinthians, kind of the last thing that we need to talk about as we finish up this book is a big vocabulary word, reconciliation. This is kind of the main vocabulary word of the book. We don't have a lot of time, but I think that we can probably um, wrap up most of what we need to say. So, um, reconciliation... is all about it's all about a bad relationship being restored and in chapter 5 and chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians this is where we find Paul using this terminology a lot you guys read chapter 4 last night right just chapter 4 so chapter 5 and chapter 6, as you read that tonight, um, you're going to see Paul using this term reconciliation a lot. And in fact, he's going to go so far as to say, um, very, very interesting phrase, he's going to say that he and the other apostles have a ministry of reconciliation. As Paul thinks about his ministry... This is a vocabulary word that's going to be one of the most central concepts to everything he does pastorally, missionary, preaching. Everything centers on this concept of reconciliation. And for Paul, reconciliation kind of goes two ways. There is a re reconciliation that um, you guys have probably used this terminology before of like vertical and horizontal relationship, right? And vertical would be relationship with God. God. Horizontal would be relationship with others, others right? Um, we could use that to kind of break down Paul's understanding of reconciliation. He says there's a vertical reconciliation. All right? Do our relationships with God need to be restored? Yes. 
Was humanity's relationship with God once good? Yes. yes, it was once good, and it needs to be restored to that state of goodness, because what has made that good relationship go bad? Fall. Yeah, sin and the fall. So Paul says <laughs> that one part of reconciliation is kind of this, this vertical way. Our bad relationship with God needs to be restored. And the way that this happens is through the gospel of Christ. He says in 2 Corinthians 5, um, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespass against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us, and we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So, in the gospel... Christ became sin for us in order to give us his, he exchanges our sin for his righteousness. righteousness. Um, so Christ became sin for us so we can be righteous. And now we are made right with God. And in that text, something that's really interesting is the idea, um, who sent Christ? God. God. So is reconciliation something that God was unwilling to do? No. No. Reconciliation is something God is very willing to do to the extent of sending Christ. All right? So whenever we think of reconciliation, you shouldn't think, oh, God is brooding in heaven. He's very, very, very mad. And Jesus then has to kind of convince him to be reconciled to you. In that passage that I just read, it's very interesting that God is the one who is offering reconciliation to you. Um, Theologians will often say it this way. God doesn't need to be reconciled to you. You need to be reconciled to him. God is the willing party in all of this. God is the one who is offering reconciliation in this. He's the one who wants reconciliation. But what we saw in Romans is how many people naturally seek after God? How many naturally sin? Everybody. So the, the very interesting thing in this text is that reconciliation is not something Christ does to God, where he, it makes God willing to forgive and love and all of that stuff. Instead, reconciliation is something that the triune God is offering you, and Paul's ministry is to persuade you to accept that reconciliation because we're the ones who turn the back on God, not the other way around. It's a very interesting thing in that passage to, to find. You would think that the offending party would be the party that wants reconciliation and that the offended party would be the one who is maybe less willing to have reconciliation. If you think about your relationships, you wrong a friend and the friend is mad at you. You feel guilty. You want to make up with them. And maybe the friend isn't ready to forgive yet. 
But in this relationship, the offended party is the one who's constantly saying, let's be reconciled. And the offending party is the one who's constantly saying no. And Paul is trying to persuade and compel people to accept reconciliation. Very, very interesting wording and passage here. Um, The other type of reconciliation is horizontal. Uh, We talked yesterday about a guy that got kicked out of the church, and did the church have a very easy time accepting him back? No. And Paul is writing this letter in part to bring about reconciliation in human relationships. And several of them, actually. Reconciliation between the guy that was excommunicated in the church, but also reconciliation. Uh, Who is the Corinthian church uh, really offended and wronged in the letters that we've read? Paul. And he's writing in order to offer reconciliation to them. I'm the offended party. And I'm offering you restoration and right relationship with me. Right? And the Corinthian church has been maybe a little bit hesitant to take this in some of those letters. But Paul is offering it nonetheless. So um, reconciliation, restoration in human relationships. Um, Maybe with Paul, definitely with um, the excommunicated guy. So, and Paul, again, defines his entire ministry in reconciliation language. His ministry is one of reconciliation And after that passage that I read where he said, you know, the offended party God is offering reconciliation to you and we're compelling you as his ambassadors, as his messengers to be reconciled to him. We're offering that to you. We're trying to persuade you to do that. He says in chapter six, working together with God, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you, and in a day of salvation, I've helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. That passage reads throughout the ages. Today, you've heard God's voice. Today, you've heard that he's offering reconciliation to you. Today is a favorable time. If you haven't accepted that, to accept it. Today, God's offering salvation to you. So if you haven't accepted it, now is a favorable time to accept it because God has been gracious to you, allowing you to hear that message today. So uh, I want you to read All right, here's a question. Um, Do you want a lot of time in class tomorrow for a review game? Which means a little bit more homework tonight. Or do you want less homework tonight, but less time for review in class tomorrow? More reading tonight, more time for review. Who said, all right, we're going to take a vote. Who says more homework, more review time? How much more homework? Is it just like one extra chapter? So you guys help me figure this out. We've got to read 2 Corinthians 5 through 9. You want all of that tonight and then all of class tomorrow to review for the test? Yes or no? It's not very long. So you guys want to finish all of it tonight? All right, we'll do a review game tomorrow. We'll go over some stuff that's going to be on the test and we'll play Trash Kit, um, Trash Kit Duck.
Trash getting better. So, all right. See you guys tomorrow.